1 Corinthians 15, we begin in verse 35. And again, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. But some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake.
Let me call your attention in particular, although we'll be looking at various portions of the chapter, but let me call your attention to verse 20. This is something of a conclusion that uh, follows everything leading up to it where Paul writes, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. But now is Christ risen from the dead. There's a recurring word in this chapter that reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes. The word that I have in mind just now is that word vain. I don't know if you were able to detect just how often that word occurs. Let me recount some of the instances. Verse 2, By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Verse 17, a nearly identical repeat of verse 14, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. And verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So let's compile the things that are potentially vain. Your beliefs are potentially vain. The grace of God is potentially vain. The preaching of the gospel is potentially vain. Your faith is potentially vain. Your labor for the Lord is potentially vain. And why do these verses bring the book of Ecclesiastes to mind? Well, because the major theme of that book has to do with things that are vain. The word vanity, similar, it's a different language, obviously. It's Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New. But you are familiar, I trust, with that recurring statement in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, All is vanity and vexation of spirit. And the words vanity in the Old Testament and vain in the New Testament are slightly different. And like I say, two different languages, but they do have something in common. In the Old Testament, the word vanity means transient, something that is temporal or very short in duration. The word means literally breath. And if you're ever standing outside on a cold day when you can see your breath, how long does each breath last? How long is it visible in the air, any particular breath that you may exhale? Oh, you know, don't you, that each breath is gone in an instant. You could hardly time it with a stopwatch. And for something to be that short in duration makes it pretty useless or worthless. 
how much value could be placed on that vapor that appears in the air for just such a brief instant. In the New Testament, the word vain carries the idea of something that is of no value. It's empty or worthless. So the two words convey the same idea of things that are of no value. Paul's point in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is that if Christ be not risen from the dead, then your faith is vain. It's void of any value. So because of the potential for his preaching and his labors and his struggles during the course of his ministry, as well as the faith of those to whom he preached to all be worthless at the end of the day, Paul states the matter with absolute certainty that Christ is risen from the dead. Again, the words of our text, verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. He announces or proclaims in that verse. And this declaration that Christ is risen from the dead is not simply an announcement by Paul as if to suggest that a dogmatic announcement is all that's needed to establish the truth of it. Some preachers, you know, kind of think like that. You can almost tell at times when a preacher is insecure. They talk louder and they slam the pulpit harder, thinking that maybe the volume of their voice and uh, the degree with which they can pound the pulpit uh, may convince their hearers but that, that what they're saying is truth. So the thinking goes. Well, that's not what Paul is doing in this chapter. His announcement is preceded by the evidence that leads him to this conclusion. He was seen, that is, Christ. Christ was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, he says in verse 5. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, he adds in verse 6. After that, he was seen of James, verse 7. Then of all the apostles, he adds. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, verse 8. So what Paul has done there is to compile quite a bit of eyewitness testimony to the truth of Christ's resurrection. These people saw him. But what gives added and perhaps conclusive weight to these eyewitness accounts is that Christ's resurrection is according to the scriptures. Look at verses 3 and 4, if you would. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So Christ is adding something here that even carries more weight than eyewitness testimony. This was all done in accordance with the divine plan of God that was worked out in eternity past and has now been executed in time. 
Christ died, Christ rose, all in accordance with the scriptures, what these men witnessed, these apostles and James and 500 brethren, what they all saw is also vindicated by what the Bible says. This was done in accordance with the scriptures. What I would like to do this morning is to look at the things that are listed in this chapter as being vain, if Christ's resurrection is not true, but I want to look at them from what we could call a positive perspective, since Christ's resurrection is true. And by looking at these things from a positive perspective, we'll be able to see in the course of this study the practical effects of the truth of Christ's resurrection. The practical effects of the truth of Christ's resurrection. Since Christ's resurrection is true, we are able to positively affirm, first of all, that the Christian's faith is vindicated. The Christian's faith is vindicated. Of all the things that are said to be vain in this chapter, the emphasis behind them is on the Christian's faith. If the, Christ, if the resurrection of Christ be not true, unless ye have believed in vain, Paul writes in verse 2. Now the word believe in this verse comes from the same root word from which we get the word faith. And there are many ways, one could argue, in which a professing Christian can be said to have believed in vain. Christ's parable of the sower in Matthew 13 illustrates those ways. The stony ground hearer who initially hears the word with joy, but becomes offended once persecution or tribulation arises, such a person can be said to have believed in vain. The same applies to the one who was led astray by the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. He too could be said to have believed in vain. His interest in Christ was but temporary. I don't believe, however, that these ways of believing in vain are what Paul has in mind in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15. It's also possible, you see, to believe in vain by believing something that's false. And what the Christians at Corinth were being tempted to believe that was false would have been that the resurrection of Christ didn't actually take place. That his resurrection was not true. The ancient Greek Gnostics that are contended against in a number of New Testament epistles held to the view that physical matter was intrinsically evil. So this world is intrinsically evil by virtue of the matter, the physical matter that uh, it's composed of. The same with a fleshly body. It's intrinsically evil. So the Greek theory went. 
They were repulsed at the very notion that God would even take to himself flesh. They did not believe in the incarnation of flesh. They, they found that doctrine to be repugnant, that God would take to himself that which is intrinsically evil, even a physical body. So they certainly would have been repulsed by the notion that Christ, or that anyone else for that matter, would rise from the dead in bodily fashion. They would have searched for other explanations for the resurrection of Christ. And this could account for why Paul devotes a section of this chapter to answer the question as to how the dead are raised and the kind of bodies that they're raised with. It could also account for his seemingly harsh response to the question when he writes in verse 36, Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. The point I'm looking to make now is that believing in vain amounts to denying the literal and physical resurrection of Christ. He wasn't simply a ghost, you see. He presented himself as alive to his apostles. Do you remember the account in John's gospel when he appeared to doubting Thomas and he said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. He presented himself to Thomas as one who was literally and physically resurrected from the grave. And what was the response of Thomas at the end? Oh, he bowed before him and confessed him to be his Lord and his God. In his first epistle, John also places an emphasis on the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. Listen to how John's first epistle begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. You see what an emphasis John is placing on the fact that what he heard, the person he saw and heard and handled, was a physical man, the resurrected Christ in bodily form. To believe anything other than that Christ rose literally and bodily from the grave is to believe in vain. And that's the point Paul is making in verse 2, and it's a point that he repeats in verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is vain. And again in verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. You see what an emphasis he's putting then on their faith. The issue pertains to their faith. So much is at stake concerning the validity of your faith by the doctrine of the resurrection. 
But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? He proclaimed with certainty in verse 20. And if your faith is in Christ, the risen Son of God, then your faith is not in vain. Indeed, your faith is vindicated. This is the other side of the coin now, you could say. Your faith is vindicated. Your faith in the gospel of Christ is vindicated. Notice how Paul begins this chapter. Many look upon these opening verses in 1 Corinthians 15 as providing a very concise but complete definition of the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now when you add to this statement in 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul says of Christ in his opening verses to the Romans, then you could say that the believer's faith in the person of Christ is vindicated. Listen to how Romans begins. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, And now as Paul continues here, he's going to tell his readers about this gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Do you see in those verses how Paul covers first the humanity of Christ? He is of the seed of David according to the flesh. He writes in verse 3. And then he covers the deity of Christ in the next verse where, where he writes that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. His resurrection, in other words, declares him to be God. And what a powerful declaration that is. Think about it for a moment. When Christ called Lazarus forth from the grave, where Lazarus had lain for four days, the crowd was totally astonished And there were those at that time who were told, believed on him. John 11 and verse 36. How much more when Christ himself lays in a tomb for three days, following a torturous death by crucifixion, and then comes forth from the grave. My, wouldn't you say that he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead? Who can do that sort of thing outside of God? So your faith in the gospel is vindicated 
and your faith in the person of Christ is vindicated by his resurrection, and your faith in the mission of Christ is vindicated by his resurrection. His mission is declared by Paul in verse 3. Notice that part of the verse that says, Christ died for our sins. Oh, he died to be sure. Even those who fail to recognize his deity will give us that much. He died. He was nailed to a cross. But this was not without purpose. Indeed, this was the very purpose for which he came. He died for our sins. What a blessing to know that one came who could and did die for our sins. But not only is your faith in his person and in his word vindicated, but your faith in God's word is also vindicated. You will have noticed that when Paul refers to Christ's death and to his resurrection, he ties them both to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 3. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He adds in verse 4, the risen Christ himself showed those two disciples on the Emmaus Road that everything that had transpired with Christ was according to the Scriptures. So we read in Luke 24 and verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament points to his sufferings and do his glory. They had trouble understanding that. Indeed, the disciples themselves didn't understand it. But when Christ rose from the dead, it certainly all came together for them. To avoid believing in vain, then, it becomes essential that you believe the right things. There is such a thing you see as what are called by Peter, I think it's in his first or second epistle, when he refers to damnable heresies. There are things that you can actually believe that are damnable that will lead your soul to hell. A misunderstanding about the person that you say you believe in can lead to that. You may recall from John's Gospel where Christ said to the Pharisees, if you believe not that I am he, the word he in italics, so you could find Christ saying, if you believe not that I am, that he is Jehovah God, ye shall die in your sins. Very important then, isn't it, to have a right view of the person you're worshiping. Because if you have a wrong view of who he is, that becomes a damnable heresy. You must believe in the person of Christ. You must believe in the work of Christ. To believe these things is to believe in the gospel of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is an, is an essential ingredient to the things that must be believed for salvation. So Paul writes in Romans 10 and verse 9, 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I wonder this morning, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in who he is and in what he's done? Do you believe that God has raised him from the dead? To believe otherwise is to believe in vain. But to believe the truth of Christ as he's revealed in Scripture is salvation. So that's the first practical effect of the resurrection of Christ. Your faith in him is vindicated. Let me add secondly in a similar line of thought that the Christian's hope is made sure. His faith is vindicated and his hope is made sure. Notice again the words of verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, Paul says. But then he goes on to give us the consequence of such a vain faith. When he adds, ye are yet in your sins. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. And as a result of your faith being vain, you are yet in your sins. What an awful thought to be yet in our sins. As Christians, you see, we've been delivered from sin's guilt and sin's dominion. We rejoice so much in those words of Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And in Romans 6 and verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. But none of that is true if Christ is not raised from the dead. We're not under grace, but under the law. And therefore, there is condemnation to our souls because we're not under grace, but under the law. Could anything be more helpless or hopeless than to be yet in our sins? Oh, it is true that the Christian still fights against sin, the things that I would, I find myself not doing. The things that I wouldn't, I find myself doing, Paul says in Romans 7. But the struggle is all in vain. If there's no hope for victory, if Christ be not raised, we are yet in our sins, and we have sin as our master and the devil as our father. If Christ be not raised. But now is Christ risen from the dead. We read again in verse 20. And because he is risen, our hope for sins forgiven is made sure. His resurrection, you see, attests to the truth that his sacrifice for our sins was accepted by his Father. Our assurance of sins forgiven, you could say, is based not only on his resurrection from the dead, but also is based on his ascension into heaven. Equally important, you could say. 
his ascension, his resurrection, and his ascension. And I love the way this is brought out in the first chapter of Hebrews. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What assurance can you have, dear believer, that your sins are forgiven and that you are no longer in your sins? Here is how your hope is made sure. Christ sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the exalted position he earned by his righteous life and his atoning death. This is a position that he would not occupy until he had successfully accomplished the work of purging our sins. It is a position, by the way, that he would not occupy had he not risen from the dead. So our hope for forgiveness of sins is made sure by Christ's resurrection. I would also add that our hope for life beyond the grave is made sure by Christ's resurrection. Again, the words of verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead, but then note what Paul adds about Christ's resurrection. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. He is the first fruits of them that slept. And what this means is just as surely as he is risen from the dead, so will those who believe in him follow and rise from the grave themselves. Our hope for life beyond the grave is fastened to the truth that Christ himself rose from the grave. Listen to what Paul writes later in the chapter, beginning in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Our faith in Christ, you see, while it has many practical applications as to how we live in this present world, we have to affirm nevertheless that it takes us beyond this world. We believe in a better world that is yet to come. The shorter catechism question that I probably cited more than any other is question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? 
And the answer, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. I can't deny that every time I read those words there comes forth from my heart a sigh that I heave. Oh, Lord, come quickly and consummate redemption and bring us to that point where we are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. If Christ be not raised from the dead, of course, that hope is vain. We are yet in our sins, and those who have slept in Christ are perished, verse 18 says. Do you begin to see how much rides on the truth of the resurrection of Christ? This truly is the cornerstone for all our hopes and dreams for life beyond this present life in this sin-cursed world. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, Paul writes in verse 19. But since Christ is risen from the dead, our hope is made sure that we too will rise and that our rising will be glorious. Corruption will be left behind. Mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. And because your hope is in Christ's atoning death, you can anticipate that on that fearful day of judgment, you'll have an advocate, even Christ himself, who will plead his own atoning death for your forgiveness. And because the righteousness of his perfect life will have been imputed to you, you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in that judgment day. And because corruption will give way to incorruption and mortality will be swallowed up by life, you will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. Oh, does not the very thought of it fill and thrill your soul? At our best in this present world, we don't come close to knowing what it means to enjoy God. We're too weighed down by our infirmities and by the trials and temptations of this present evil world. We may go through times when the joy of the Lord does indeed fill our hearts, but don't we have to admit that those times are too few and far between? We read of the great revivals that swept the land in days gone by, but how far back do we have to go to even read about those days? And if you study even those periods of history about revival deeply enough, you discover that even when they did occur, that problems and abuses occurred, even during those times of spiritual refreshment. Oh, what a blessing to be able to see beyond this present world to a better one to come. But are such hopes merely figments of our imaginations? Are they empty dreams that we concoct to help us cope with the trials of this life? 
Well, if Christ be not raised from the dead, then our religion really is the way Karl Marx described it as an opium for the masses. A crutch to lean on to try to make life a little more bearable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And because he is risen, our hopes and dreams are not vain, but are made sure by Christ himself. So let's affirm the glorious truth of Christ risen from the dead this morning. We have the accounts of his resurrection in all four Gospels. We have the story of the impact of his resurrection on the early church. Keep that in mind the next time you read through the book of Acts. What was it that motivated the early church to such heights of zeal that they knew where they were convinced that Christ was raised from the dead? And we have the explanation of his resurrection given to us in the epistles. It's no wonder that the resurrection of Christ from the dead is viewed by many as being the best attested fact in the entire history of civilization. We affirm so many things to be true in history that don't come close to matching the historical attestation to the resurrection of Christ. And there have been skeptics who have engaged with great fervency in their attempts to disprove the resurrection of Christ, only to end up being believers as a result of their skeptical quests. They certainly choose the right doctrine to attack. For if the resurrection of Christ can be demonstrated to be false, then Christianity crumbles. It really does become mere vanity. There's that much writing on the truth of it. But now is Christ risen from the dead. This day is called Easter Sunday, isn't it? But as I've said in the past, the event of Christ's resurrection is much larger and much more important than to designate only one day out of the year to commemorate it. The whole reason we meet on the first day of the week, every week, is because of the truth of Christ's resurrection. It's that momentous. So again, I ask you the question, do you believe that Christ is risen from the dead? If you do, then your faith is vindicated and your hope is made sure. If you don't believe in it, you should. There's nothing unreasonable in it, especially when you consider that Christ is God and has been declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Oh, may the power of his resurrection reach all our souls this morning to bring salvation where there's still darkness and to bring increased joy and assurance to our hopes. There is one more practical effect of the resurrection. I'm going to save that one for our service this afternoon. And we'll see how it pertains to our motivation 
But for now, I'll leave it right here. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you do, your faith is vindicated and your hope is made sure. Your hope of salvation, your hope of sins forgiven, your hope of life beyond the grave, your hope of a home in heaven, all made sure by the glorious truth that Christ is risen from the dead. Oh, may the truth of it be stamped on each and every heart this morning. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring our service to a close, most gladly do we affirm the truth that Christ is risen from the dead. We thank thee that he came for the express purpose of dying for our sins, and we thank thee that the grave couldn't keep him because he is the Son of God. What a powerful declaration of his deity, and that he came forth from the grave. Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us not to take such a truth for granted, but may we know the power of it in our own lives. And if there be those here this morning or those that are tuned in by webcast who are not convinced of it, oh Lord, may it please thee to strive with them until they acknowledge the truth and respond to it by coming to Christ. So hear our prayers, dear Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.